Well, good morning. Grab a Bible if you have one or your phone or whatever way you can and figure out how to look with us at Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of your Bible. Uh, it is, we've been studying the beginning, the book of Genesis, and as we begin, uh, I want to tell you the link between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. If you're reading through, it looks like there's kind of creation happening and then creation happening again, but maybe in a different way, and you might kind of raise your eyebrow. Well, I want to tell you how one of our children's ministry uh, curriculum writers explains the link between chapters one and two. So our kids in the room are already a step ahead of us because they studied Genesis some last year, okay? So they know this, and they're going to recognize this. But basically, he says this, that Genesis chapter one is like opening your phone to your photos app and having a photo album called Creation with seven photos, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But on the sixth photo, there's a little arrow at the bottom. And you know what that means when you look at your photo app. It means that that's not actually a photo. It's just a screenshot of a video, right? Well, chapter two is like clicking play on that video, which for the most part zooms in and puts in slow-mo days three and day six of creation. So you got it? So now you kind of understand how Chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2 of Genesis work together. But I want you to look at the first sentence of chapter 4 because this, excuse me, of chapter 2, verse 4, because this section, beginning in verse 4, is the beginning of a whole new section of Genesis. Yes, we're still talking about creation, but it launches us into sort of a new topic of discussion related to Genesis. And this is apparent because of the phrase, in the first sentence, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Okay, just that verse. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. The phrase, these are the records of, is going to be an indicator that I'm going to want you to pay attention to for the rest of our sermon series in Genesis. And what this phrase does is it acts like the little markers you see on a long YouTube video. I don't know if you pull up one of those videos and it's kind of longer and you can see along the timeline there's these little red markers. You can actually click through to these markers to jump to different sections of the video. Well, the phrase, these are the records of, is the markers for the new sections throughout Genesis. So if you're paying attention to those, you can kind of click your way through Genesis by looking for that phrase. It's like chapter titles in a book. This is Genesis' way of saying, okay, I've given you some information. Now let me show you why it matters. Or as the old radio journalist storyteller Paul Harvey said, and now the rest of the story. This is what this phrase does. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Now, starting in chapter 5, though, if you skip ahead a little bit, that's the next time we see that phrase. So we're going to know that the beginning of chapter 5 is a new section in Genesis, but throughout the, from chapter 5 forward, every time we see this, it says these are the records of, and then it follows with a person's name or family. It's always about people from chapter 5 forward, but here in chapter 2, we're getting a bigger picture. We're seeing that these are the records not just of a family, but of the heavens and the earth. That all of creation boils down to this. So in one sense, we are introduced to the next few chapters of Genesis by this phrase. And we get here a clear understanding uh, of, you know, our existence with God, His 
very good creation, but also we see what was lost when sin entered the world. So we're going to see all the really good stuff today, but then that's going to give us a picture of what was lost when sin entered the world through man's disobedience, which caused our experience of God's creation then to go from very good to very bad. We've talked about that a little bit. The other way to look at this section, this part of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, is as an introduction not just to this section, but to the much larger story of the Bible. So, despite man's disobedience, God never stops pursuing and blessing humanity. So the long story of the Bible that really begins in chapter 1, verse 1, but then is sort of a new beginning here in chapter 2, verse 4, the long story of the Bible is God's promise to provide rescue for mankind from the curse of sin, to conquer evil forever, and ultimately to remake creation. This is the long story of the Bible. In fact, if you're thinking of the Bible as a big ark, what you see in the beginning of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and what you see in the end of Revelation chapters 21 and 22 are almost mirror images of one another. So in your Bible study, you could go home and go read the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of the Bible and even see this big story coming to fruition. What God created in the beginning, he promises then to remake in the end. That's just a good little tip for your Bible study. So Genesis 2 paints a clear picture of what was to be lost when sin entered the world, but it also paints a clear picture then of what is to be regained when God fulfills his promise of recreation. It's a vision for us. Genesis 2 shows us, like in living color, like a video on our phone, what the meaning of life with God is. The first thing we're going to see is that God is the source of our life. God's the source of our life. Look with me in verse 4 of chapter 2. I'll read the first three verses for you as you follow along. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So, as if zooming in and turning on slow-mo on day three, when God spoke the dry land and plants into existence, chapter two reiterates that the only reason anything exists is because God willed it to be. So just like Genesis 1, we get the picture. God is so much bigger and more powerful than any other created thing. He's before it all. He exists over it all, right? We see that picture. But whereas chapter 1 referred to God in this way with the name Elohim, the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God, chapter 2 reveals another element of God's way of being, of his character, by adding a second name. We see in our English translations, it says the Lord God. Well, these are two names for God that put together mean a very specific thing. The names are Yahweh, Elohim. These are Hebrew names for God, which describe his character. So remember Elohim, the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God, but now we've added to it 
in Genesis chapter 2 to show us a new angle about who God is, the name Yahweh. So he's the all-powerful God, yes, but he's also, what Yahweh means, is a personal and present God. All-powerful, sovereign, almighty, yet personal and present. Above all, nothing can stand against him. He has no rival. Everything that came to be was because of the word he spoke, yet he comes to dwell with man. He's big, but he's also personal, right? This is who God is. He's the Lord God. So what this shows us is that God is not just distant. He is distant. He's big. He's out there. He's overall. But he's not only that. He's also personal and present. He's hands-on with creation. Now, hands-on uh, would have been something understood in ancient times to be like a micromanager uh, or like ruling with an iron fist. Uh, I saw this on someone's bag on Wednesday night at church. It just said iron fist. And I, and I said, is that how you rule? And he goes, oh, yeah. Uh, so this is what they would have understood hands-on leadership to be from an ancient deity. Say the neighbors of Israel, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. These, they would have understood this to be micromanaging and, and like ruling with an iron fist. But Genesis actually paints a very different picture of what hands-on leadership and ruling is and creating is when it shows us the Lord God. Look at verse 7. It says, The hands-on God, the Lord God, formed the man. And that word is so important. The plot has shifted from dry land and vegetation now to the apex of creation on day six, the creation of mankind. And it says that the Lord God, this all-powerful yet personal, hands-on God, formed the man. This same word is used in the Old Testament to describe the work of God like a potter at his wheel, carefully crafting something both beautiful and purposeful. And so there's a clear sense here in this word formed that God not just spoke and we became, but that God took time and, and intention and there was design and thought into the creation of man, that he formed us on purpose. Though we are made from dirt, just like all the other animals, humanity is the only creature described in the beginning as being formed by this hands-on Lord God. But there's even more distinction that emphasizes the special relationship we have with God in Genesis chapter 2. It also says in verse 7 that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. And you might remember chapter 1 uh, on day 6 when it described how there, the God, God had provided food for all the living creatures that had the breath of life in it. And you go, okay, well, that just makes us just like all the other animals. But something really interesting happens here. Chapter 2 uses a different Hebrew word for the word breath than chapter 1. The word breath used in chapter 2 is only ever applied to God's relationship with mankind. And so that actually distinguishes us from the creation of all the other living creatures. And it goes even farther. The result of God's breath which set our organs into motion, was a different kind of life. We became living 
beings. And this is a word that has the idea of soul wrapped up in it. You remember how the ancient Hebrew people understood life holistically, that you're more than a body, that you're more than a mind, that you're more than your ability to get something done, that you also have internally a spiritual life, a soul, and all of that encompasses who you are, not one more than any other, but all of it together saying, this is you, a whole holistic being. And this word being has wrapped up in it that idea of what's wrapped up in you, your soul. So what does this mean for us? You're more than a body. Uh, You are a spiritual being. You aren't random. You're not an accident. Your value is not in your physical appearance. Now, I got up and fixed my hair this morning, and I put on a shirt that at the time was clean. It probably has coffee on it by now. But my value is not in my physical appearance. Every effort you put in today to make yourself look good for church doesn't mean anything about your value in the world. Your value is not what you're able to get done or any earthly accomplishment. What this means is that God has expressed already his love for you through the gift of breath, which is so cool because that means that every second of your life, you have a reminder of the grace of God. Can you feel it? God's grace for your life. Pete Scazzaro says that you are not a human doing You're a human being. This is what Genesis says. You have more to you. There's you were made for more than this. Now, what he means is that before you could do anything for God, your very life came from him. That is what sets your value. Your life came from God. God's your source of life. We keep reading, we're also gonna see this: that God is our source of delight. God's our source of delight. Look with me in verse 8 as the story unfolds. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden, From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. Gold from from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, now, before we get to the rivers, um, I just got to say, you're thinking about Eden and what you know about the garden in Eden. I think if there's going to be another Indiana Jones movie, which, by the way, after seeing the last one, I think Harrison Ford is up to it. I think he's got another one in him. I think it should be him discovering Eden. I think that would be a good plot. So if anyone... You, you mark my words, if it happens and there is another and they came and that, that means they watched this sermon and they took my idea and they owe us some money or something. I don't know. But 
I think that's what it should be. Harrison Ford should be Indiana Jones discovering Eden and, you know, rescuing the world from something else. But here's the deal. While I can think of a lot of beautiful places on earth to probably film that movie, can you imagine a place that's even more beautiful? Even more beautiful than the most beautiful places on earth. That is Eden. And even though there is in these sections of verses a lot of geography, a lot of topography, the point of Genesis 2, much to my Indiana Jones chagrin, is not location at all. It's quality. That's what God is trying to communicate, is what is the kind of life that God created us to live Look at all the positive features of verse 8 and 9. It says, God planted a garden, which, by the way, could also be translated paradise. God created a paradise. The name Eden itself is a word that means delight. God made us for delight. It wasn't enough for things to be beautiful in appearance, although he created things pleasing to look at. It also was good for food. Wow. This is the kind of life God created for us. Now, we're going to come back to the two trees in just a moment, but even what we've seen so far sounds amazing, right? I want you to keep in mind how we started, that Genesis 2 is, is, not, is, also, is a picture of, by the way, what is lost at the fall of mankind when sin enters the world, but it's also a picture of what will be regained when Jesus returns and restores everything and remakes creation. So if we could just pause here for a second and just deal with a little doctrine, uh, there's a kind of a misunderstanding that's very prevalent in our culture about what heaven is. A lot of people think heaven's floating on clouds, you know, wearing little cloth diapers and playing harps or just like an, an eternal uh, choir session and that kind of thing. But if this is a picture not only of what's lost at the fall, but also what will be regained in the new creation, what we see then is that heaven is actually a physical place. It's a tangible experience of earth as paradise that's full of delight, including really good food, which I am personally very excited about. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, will they have coffee in heaven? And I was like, I think what you're trying to say is, will there be coffee on the new earth? And the answer is yes, and it'll be so much better. I think even you people who are not coffee people are going to be in the new heaven, new earth going, wow, this coffee stuff is incredible, right? I think that's what's going to happen. So that's just a little side note. This is what we have to look forward to. It's also what we have to recognize that we lost the full experience of when sin entered the world. But let's move on to verses 10 through 14. If you're looking at them, as I read these verses out loud about the rivers, your mind probably glazed over a little bit because you're like, what are these rivers? Where are they? I don't know what they look like. I've never seen them on a map. Maybe you've seen the Tigris and the Euphrates. You've talked about the Middle East a little bit. Maybe you've even been there. But the other two, we don't really actually know where they are. Uh, they are maybe historical. Some say they were lost in the, the great flood of Noah. Uh, whatever it is, the point really isn't geography, right? It's quality. So these aren't just like side notes to the story of creation that we can just skip over. We ought to think about what they mean. Well, here's what's happening. It's reinforcing the truth that this isn't just a side note to the good stuff, that this is actually a description of the good stuff and a reinforcing that God is the source of our delight. He's the source of everything good. 
So if you could find yourself in a canoe on one of these rivers and paddle upstream all the way to the top, what you would realize is that all the riches of the world are traced back to Eden. Think about Israel hearing these verses for the first time, being tempted to look at the wealth of the Babylonians, the wealth of the Egyptians, all these people who had challenged their culture or who had even conquered the Israelite people. They were looking at the wealth of other people and longing for a wealth of their own. And God reminds them in the story of creation that wealth is not found in a land or a nation or a bank account or any other place. Wealth is found in a harmonious relationship with Him, as it was in the beginning, in Eden. This is where true wealth is found, the way things began. But rivers are a cool image here. Because rivers aren't stagnant, are they? Rivers flow downstream. And so the riches of this life, life with God, the way he created it to be, are not meant to be contained. They're meant to flow out. It says that the river split into four rivers. You can imagine what this might mean. I already mentioned that two of these uh, are known historical geographical uh, uh, rivers. The other two, their counterparts, are unknown where they are. But what you can think of is as that river forks out into the four rivers, that it could be as if it's extending the blessings of the Creator to the four corners of the ends of the earth. From the source all the way to the ends. This is what this is. So the question is, we're thinking about the rivers and Eden and the beauty. What kind of wealth do you long for? I mean, we live in this broken world. What is it that you wish was true about your life? Do you wish you had more money? Do you wish you had better physical health? Do you wish you had more intelligence? Do you wish, what is it you wish? The reality is that whatever riches you find in this life are only a small evidence of the true source of all richness of life, which is God's created order. God himself dwelling with man in perfect harmony in paradise. If you could think about what you long for in life and paddle upstream, what you would find is that the source of that longing is God himself and that God wants good things and delight for you. Now, unfortunately, we lost that at the fall. We can't fully experience that because of sin in the world. But praise God, we can look forward to that in the new creation. So our ultimate delight is not in the gifts God gives, but it's in the giver himself. You know what else that does? That frees you up to be open-handed with the things you have. If you have riches in this life of any sort, you can be generous with those things because you know when all things are redeemed and recreated that you will have more than you currently have. You'll have true riches, true delight, because you'll be with God. So you can have what, take what you have and you can send it downstream. That's what happens. That's what God designed riches to do, to extend his blessings from the source to the ends of the earth. So Eden's a beautiful picture of the reality that creation was a truly happy story. Uh, and it's in Eden that we find uh, the foundations of what true happiness is in human life. 
Now, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, a couple weeks ago, verses 1 through 3 in day 7 of creation, that the first sort of uh, what you might call um, God's design for our delight uh, was Sabbath, a rhythm of rest. And that's one way that we can enter into a world of delight with God is practicing not just working hard, but also rest. Rest in who He is and what He's given, right? So we see... The second thing in the Garden of Eden, which is while God calls us to a rhythm of rest, he also leads us to a life of work. Believe it or not, work is one of God's designs for our delight. Work is not a result of sin. Work predates sin. Our experience of work today is much, much different because of sin, But work itself is actually really good. And we can get a taste of that in the here and now, but look forward to a vision of what true work and fulfillment will be like when God remakes all things. So God is our source of purpose. Check this out in verse 15 through 17 as we just kind of keep on reading. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, go back to verse 15 for just a second. There's a word there that's repeated. Anytime you see this in your Bible study, that probably should set off an alarm for you and go, I want to find out more about that word. The word that's repeated is the word placed. It says that God placed man in the garden. It was in verse 8. It shows up again in verse 15. God placed man in the garden. Now, this Hebrew word shares the same root as the word the Bible uses to describe the promised land as God's place of rest for the Israelites. The New Testament authors would also pick, this, pick up this same idea and use this word or this idea to talk about heaven as God's place of rest for believers in Jesus. So what Genesis is trying to say here in repeating this word placed is that God intends our way of life to be one of contentment combined with function. That we're put somewhere on purpose, but that that is our ultimate destiny and delight. That's what's really good about life, but also it comes with meaning. I've told you guys before, but we like to do puzzles as a family, and we have this tradition on Christmas where we, we do a puzzle, and then we take a picture of us doing that puzzle as it's finished, and then that picture becomes the puzzle for the next year, and we get it made online. And we get, I've told you about this before, but here's what's interesting about puzzles at Christmas. It seems like every year we get to the end of it, and we're missing a piece. I don't know if you're OCD like me, but when I'm missing a piece of something, like a puzzle, it drives me crazy. It's like it is not complete. It is not good, right, without that piece. It's, I mean, it's just like we might as well throw the whole thing away, throw it in the fire, you know, just without that one little piece. Well, this is kind of what God's trying to communicate with the idea that he placed man in the garden, is that, yes, man completes the puzzle in a way, but also man is a vital part of seeing the whole picture, how all things work together. We're that intentional. God 
designed us to be that way. He gives us not just that feeling of this is complete when man's placed in the garden, but also that there's a function in man's place in the garden. And there's really two simple functions that this passage shows us. Starting in verse 15, we see that our function is to serve God, to serve God. Uh, 2.15 says uh, to, to work the garden and watch over it, uh, to cultivate it, to care for it. These are other ways you could say that. I like how John Mark Comer describes our role in the garden. He says that we find meaning and purpose when we take the raw materials of the earth and we make them into something more take the raw materials of earth and we make them into something more. We make something out of them. So the motion picture of the still image from day six, when God says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, this is what we're talking about. So God gave us trees. So we make lumber and we build houses. We take the raw materials of earth and we make something out of them. God gives us minerals and energy. And so we create technology this is all part of what God intended. When we didn't, he didn't just want us to just stay in the garden and just like mosey around and listen to the birds. He gave us a role in the garden. And work is wrapped up in that. And it's good for us. So all this is part of our purpose. We start new businesses. We start new churches. We invest in communities. We farm. We ranch. We do all these things as part of God's good design for our life, our purpose for existence. But the picture of Genesis 2 is not just that we do the work, but it's that we do it for God. We do it for God. The words in this passage are the very same words used to instruct Old Testament priests about their role in God's temple, to work it and watch over it, to be a steward of it, to be a manager of it. And we already talked about in chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2 that God's creation, the cosmos, is like God's temple where he sits comfortably enthroned from a place of rest, ruling and reigning over all things. Well, in God's temple, the cosmos of creation, God has placed us as priests to steward and manage his creation. In service to him, we do our work. This is why the New Testament writer Colossians would tell us to do our work as for the Lord and not for men. So whatever work you do, whether it's uh, you're in school, and that's your work right now, is I'm going to school, whether it's uh, something in business or construction. Uh, maybe you're in ministry. Maybe you're in education. Uh, maybe you're parenting at home right now, and that's your work. Whatever you're doing, all of it has a deeper purpose. So <clears throat> let me just point out a little parenthetical statement because I think I have time. Um, have you noticed that this is all directed toward Adam? If you hadn't noticed that yet, what you're going to see in verse 18 and following is that God then, in the next kind of sequence of the created order in chapter 2, is to introduce women to the equation. You might be asking yourself, especially women in the room, what am I supposed to do? If Adam is supposed to do all the work, what am I here for? And you might find yourself thinking that you're somewhat subordinate to Adam, but can I just 
paint this picture really briefly here. We're actually going to talk about this in vivid detail next week. And so, ladies, I want you to plan on being here in the room next week to be encouraged. Men, I want you to plan on being here next week to start to begin to think rightly about this, okay, Uh, if you're not already. So we're going to see this in vivid detail next week, but the depiction of the creation of women happens next in this series of events. But women are created equal to men. All the blessings and instruction of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 apply to women in to the same degree they apply to men. So work it to watch over it. This is to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, have dominion. All this applies to both men and women equally. I'm going to show you exactly how that works next week. But I just wanted to address that if you ladies were thinking, where am I in the story? Okay, so it's coming. So we exist to serve God. God's the source of our purpose. But also wrapped up in that is this idea that we submit to God. That part of our purpose for living is to submit to God. There's two trees in Eden that we learn about here. The tree of life, which represents the presence and the goodness of God. All life comes from it. It's the source. It emanates, radiates with beauty and glory and goodness and grace, provision. And people are encouraged to eat not only from every tree, but also from the tree of life. The other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Tim Mackey from The Bible Project, which if you haven't connected to The Bible Project through their app or their YouTube videos, it is a really, really good resource for you. I love how he says what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. He says it represents the decision to give humans to trust God's definition of good and evil or to seize autonomy from God and define good and evil for themselves. So, He's saying that the knowledge of good and evil is about more than just understanding good and evil. That it's actually a choice that God gives us. That if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we have decided to reject God's definition of good and evil and actually take autonomy from God and make our own definitions of good and evil. It's like the end of the book of Judges where it says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. This is the result of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, we have a little problem, though, because almost every other language in history has multiple words for the word knowledge. Unfortunately, we only have one, so we kind of have to make it work for lots of different things. Well, this Hebrew word is not just about having more information, which we always want more information, right? Why not knowledge of good and evil? What does that do to us? It doesn't hurt to know, right? Well, it's not just information. It carries the weight of personal experience. So think of it this way. God commands humans here to submit, as part of their purpose of existence, to one rule. Not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not to withhold information from them. But to protect them from the personal experience of evil. So you can see that our purpose on earth in submitting is not just so that we wouldn't have something. It's so that we would be protected from the personal experience of evil so that we could fully live in the goodness of God, partaking of 
every ounce of life that he would offer us, every ounce that we could take in, unlimited life, eternal life from the tree of life. So what happened? Well, here's the reality. We chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to get there in chapter 3 where the serpent comes in, this new character in the story, tempts Eve, the woman. Did God really say that you'll die? Well, yeah, he did. But she's tempted. She takes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning that not did she just not have the information, but she personally experienced evil. This is what we do, though. We break rules because we think rules are limiting, right? This is how we approach life. We think rules are limiting. We break them only to find ourselves even more severely limited as a consequence. Like, even if you don't get caught breaking a rule, you still are self-limiting. You're self-imposing limits on your life so as not to get caught. Here's what I mean. I've told you before, uh, I've confessed a sin to you, that when I was a child, I stole a pencil from the zoo, uh, from the gift shop at the zoo. So put yourself in my shoes, stealing a pencil from the gift shop at the zoo. Um, I think it was a zebra pencil, but I can't, maybe admit it. I think it was a zebra. But I remember getting home with that pencil. Nobody knew I'd taken it. I had secretly slipped it in my pocket, got all the way home with it. And I remember thinking, I cannot use this pencil because if I do and someone sees it, I'll be found out. So even though I hadn't been caught for breaking that rule, I was now self-imposing even greater limitations on myself for having broken the rule so as not to get caught and be found out. What a terrible way to own a pencil. This is the way we approach life, and this is what happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God, before that happens in chapter 3, God stands in the garden with man and says, you are free to enjoy an unlimited amount of blessing. There's one exception. Not because I want to limit your potential, but because obedience to this command actually enlarges your potential because it keeps you in right relationship with the unlimited, limitless, eternal, infinite God. This is the way God designed us to be, in right relationship with him, eating from the tree of life. This is God's purpose for us. Unfortunately, as we said, the first humans chose to eat from the tree that brought the personal experience of evil into the world. And as a result, God's blessing was replaced with a curse. But God didn't ever turn against humans. Instead, He continued pursuing them. The end of the Bible describes the new heaven and the new earth being centered around a tree. You can read about this at the end in the book of Revelation. It's the tree of life, named in the book of Revelation at the very end. It's a tree that is accessible to all people, a tree that will provide eternal life to the residents of this new heaven and new earth. A tree that, wow, we can be able to experience, although even though we lost that chance when the first humans chose to disobey. But in order for us to experience God the way he designed our lives to be, 
the curse of sin has to be reversed. So what did God do? God stepped in with another tree. And in the middle of the story of the Bible, at the climax, he stepped in with one more tree fashioned in the shape of a cross so that he could take our curse upon himself and pay the cost in full so that by faith we could be restored to eternal life with God. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? There was a man next to him. Luke chapter 23 records this. The man next to Jesus on the cross was a a known criminal. Uh, There was no question of his guilt. He, He was in the wrong on almost every occasion of his life, a scoundrel of sorts. And hanging next to the cross, though he had begun that experience mocking Jesus, ultimately came to see Jesus for who he truly was, And by the end of that day, in their final moments, he expresses faith in Jesus. And Jesus' response in their dying moments gives us incredible hope. Do you remember what he said? Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus tells the man, Today you will be with me in the garden. That's probably not the way you remember it. You probably remember it. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's the Greek word paradiso. It means garden. It comes from the same words in the Hebrew used in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus is saying, you can be released from the curse of your sin because Jesus took it on himself. On a tree, he paid the price so that you, by faith, can experience the tree of life. Once again, by faith, that's the way to be in paradise again with Jesus. So we know what we lost when sin entered the world. But Genesis 2 also shows us what can be regained. I wonder today, do you have hope of being able one day to eat from the tree of life? to experience the fullness and delight and purpose and life that God designed for you eternally? If you don't have that hope today, you can put your faith in Jesus and you will obtain that gift of grace and have that hope. I want to lead you in a prayer and ask Haley and the team to come help us respond to this scripture. So bow your heads with me and and pray. Dear God, we pray a prayer of gratitude that you've given us a vision of what's to come. God, I love knowing what what it was like at the beginning, but in some ways the world and the way I experience it is so bad it almost doesn't apply to me. I almost go, what does this matter? But to realize that, God, what you created in the beginning, you will recreate in the end and that you are inviting me into it is a beautiful truth that changes the course of my life. I want to find life in you. I want to delight in you. God, I want to find purpose in you. My prayer is that every person here today would would have the same mindset. God, we look to you for all things. We live our lives towards you and for you because life eternal only comes from you. So God, if there's someone here today that you know needs faith in Jesus, would you push them by your Holy Spirit 
to give them courage to trust you. God, thank you for new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.